So, good evening. A couple of nights ago, Rebecca talked about anatta, or not-self. And she explored a range of different ways that we can approach the understanding that we're not the fixed and permanent and solid identities that we usually believe ourselves to be. Then last night, Brian talked about liberation or nibbana, the heart-mind that is completely free of greed, free of hatred, free of delusion, which is the overall, the ultimate goal of this practice. So tonight I'd like to try and bring these two themes together to explore how our practice progresses from suffering to freedom through an understanding of anatta, not self, as a doorway to Nibbāna. And I'm going to begin by focusing on what gets in the way of freedom, namely clinging to or contracting around or identifying with any aspect of experience whatsoever. And I'll suggest a few strategies to help that clinging to release. And then towards the end, I'll touch into what the mind can experience when the obstacles to freedom are released. So first then, remembering the slogan, if it's in the way, it is the way, we need to look at what gets in the way of freedom. And we start by recognizing where and how do we get caught? Where and how are our minds not free? And for most of us, it's that identification with a small sense of self that creates so many problems, that distorts the clear seeing of reality and limits possibilities and impedes our capacity to awaken. So this clinging to a fixed sense of I, of me, of mine is a source of powerful suffering. Some of you know the Thai meditation master, Buddhadasa Bhikkhu, who was, uh, lived in the last century. And he described this tendency to identify with our experience as a disease, a dis-ease. He says, spiritual disease, dis-ease is the disease whose germ lies in the feeling of we and ours, I and mine that is regularly present in the mind. This germ that is already in the mind develops first into the feeling of I and mine, and then, acting through the influence of self-centeredness, becomes greed, hatred and delusion, causing upset for both oneself and others. These are the symptoms of the spiritual disease that lies within us. To remember it easily, it may be called the disease of I, and mine. We must recognize that the germ is clinging, upadana, and that it is of two kinds, clinging to I and clinging to mine. Clinging to I is the feeling that I is an entity, that I am like this or like that, that I am the equal of any person. Anything of this sort is called I. Mine is taking that as belonging to me, that which I love, that which I like. Even that which we hate, we consider as my enemy. This is called mine. So before we go any further, I want to acknowledge that the language he's using is strong, and we don't want to fall into the trap of making the sense of self wrong or bad, something to be got rid of or even annihilated. So instead of judging ourselves for getting caught in identification, it's more beneficial to orient to it with compassion. Then we have a better chance of understanding when we are taking our sense of self too seriously. So given that there is this close connection between identification and suffering, we need to understand how the process of identification happens. And part of the Buddha's genius was in being able to recognize the almost automatic connections that our minds make between different aspects of experience 
and use it, and how it uses them to construct a distorted thought world. So he gave us various tools to show us exactly how we take the raw data of sense experience and then fabricate it into a whole fantasy world constructed by the mind that we then inhabit as if it was fundamentally real and true. And at the center of it all is a solid fixed me to whom all this experience is happening. So tonight I want to highlight just one particular sequence of factors that the Buddha understood as uh, forming our sense of self. It's a sequence of factors that can be described as a chain of cognition. And this chain of cognition starts with simply noticing contact, pasa, at the sense doors. So seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, physical sensations, mental activity. Then, if there's no mindfulness, that leads through feeling tone or vedana, which we've talked about, to perception, sanya, to mental formations, sankhara, to excessive thinking and proliferation of afflictive mind states, papancha. So these are all terms we've all referred to earlier in the retreat. But to explore this chain, I'm going to be using the work of uh, John Peacock, a British academic and meditation teacher who uses the Honeyball Sutta to explain this chain of cognition and how it leads to conflict. So according to John Peacock, papancha has connotations of spreading out, of the mind running amok, and becoming obsessional. And this proliferation or papancha is usually based around a strong sense of I, me, mine. And the narratives that it spins are usually about the past or the future, not so much the present. So in other words, papancha is that obsessional type of thinking that almost seems to take on a life of its own. It keeps us spinning round and round, ruminating about the same issues over and over and over again. Anyone experienced anything like that on this retreat? (laughs) Or maybe I should say, anyone not experienced this? Okay, so you know from your own experience that papancha is dukkha. And the good news is that papancha is not inevitable. If we pay careful attention to this chain of cognition, we can see how papancha comes into being and how to stop the process before it gets to that point. So the first couple of stages in this chain of contact at the sense doors and feeling tone or vedana are happening on a mostly biological level that we can't control and that is completely impersonal. For example, the body feels a sensation and it automatically registers it as either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And at this stage, there isn't really a sense of me who's experiencing this. So it's not until we get to the next link in the chain, perception or sanya, that things start to get personal. Perception is the capacity of the mind to recognize something. And it does this through comparing it to a similar experience in the past and giving it a name. So at this point, time and language come into the process, along with a sense of someone who is remembering, recognizing, and naming whatever the experience is. So this is the point in the chain of cognition where, according to John Peacock, it gets, quote, infected by the I virus. In other words, an I is inserted into the center of experience and there starts to be a sense of me here and the world out there. And this sense of me gets repeated over time, solidified and complexified into the next stage of the chain of cognition, which is sankhara, or formations, sometimes translated as mental formations or 
volitional formations to get the sense that these are constructed, concocted, fabricated. So now the simple perception of someone who is experiencing something is spun out into a sense of me and my story, my history, my narrative, my psychology and so on. And we can also see that this causal chain is not one nice, tidy, single linear strand. In real life, it plays out in multiple feedback loops that keep reinforcing and strengthening each other until often, if there's no mindfulness, we ended up tangled in a giant knot of fixed views and opinions. Or as the Buddha vividly described it, we are entangled in a thicket of views, a wilderness of views, a contortion of views, a writhing of views, a fetter of views, accompanied by suffering, distress, despair and fever, and it does not lead to disenchantment, dispassion, cessation, to calm, direct knowledge, full awakening, Nibbana. In a more contemporary, in more contemporary terms, John Peacock describes how our perception has been formed over the course of our history and the sense perceptions, and we have lots of baggage that comes along with those perceptions. So he asks, do we really contact things anew, or are we always bringing our perceptual baggage with us? So I wondered if perhaps that baggage is the Saratoga trunk that Brian spoke of the other night. We're always bringing along the kind of the dead weight of our previous uh, histories and experiences and unconsciously um, filtering our new experiences with that, what's in the background. So in case that's all sounding a bit abstract, I'd like to share an example of how that process can play out in real life uh, based on something that happened on one of my early retreats at a nine-day retreat center, a nine-day retreat in Australia, where I managed to get myself tangled up in a thicket of views and fortunately was able to see eventually how this was playing out. So as I describe what happened, you might just see if you can recognize which aspects of my experience that I was getting tangled up in and getting identified with. So at that center in Australia, like here, the meditators were instructed not to go into the kitchen unless we had a job in there. And we were also told not to take any food from the kitchen, only from what was offered in the dining room. So at breakfast on the first morning, I was um, supposed to be minding my own business, but I did notice a meditator go into the kitchen and help herself to something that I was pretty sure wasn't freely offered. And straight away, there was a proliferation explosion in my mind. So I was pretty new to practice at that time, and I'd heard something about knowing thoughts as just thoughts. <laughs> but I had no clue how to put that into practice. So I ate my breakfast pretty much uh, lost in a storm of judgment and self-righteous thinking. And then the next morning, the same scenario played out. The same meditator went and helped herself to something from the kitchen that she shouldn't have. And again, my mind got caught in all this unskillful proliferation. And this went on for several days before I was able to notice how painful it was. And when I investigated a little bit more carefully, I, I realized that all my energy was going into wanting the situation out there to change instead of looking at my own reactions. And when I did that, I understood that this woman just wanted to eat the kind of breakfast that made her happy. And that I was no different. I also wanted to eat the kind of breakfast that made me happy. So the only difference between us was that her food was on the wrong side of the kitchen door <laughs> and mine was on the right side of the kitchen door. And then I started to realize how attached I was to eating exactly what I wanted. 
how I started to recognize how the pleasant feeling tone that comes from pleasant tastes had hardened into a strong preference. And then I'd identified with those preferences so much that unconsciously I believed that what I liked was what everyone else should like too. So if other people didn't happen to enjoy a big bowl of cold cereal with yogurt and a cup of black tea without milk, well, then they were just deeply flawed human beings. (laughs) And as I started to see this identification with my food preferences, I decided to set myself a challenge. So instead of going to breakfast the next morning and just choosing my usual preferences, I told myself that I'd eat and drink whatever the person in line in front of me chose to eat and drink. So if they had oatmeal, I'd have oatmeal. If they had toast, I'd have toast. If they had tea with milk in it, I'd have tea with milk in it. And I did this for the rest of the retreat, and I was amazed how hard it was. I would sit and drink tea with milk in it, for example, and notice all the thoughts about how wrong and bad it was. (laughs) But eventually, underneath, I was able to recognize that if I could let go of the ideas about the experience, the actual taste was neutral or sometimes surprisingly even pleasant. But still, I think it was on the last morning, my, I hit my limit when the person in front of me put two slices of white bread in the toaster and then started reaching for the peanut butter. And my mind just went into overdrive. No, not the peanut butter. No, I'm just, I'm just not a peanut butter kind of girl. And then I was like, what is a peanut butter kind of girl? Like, what is that? And I realized I had all kinds of perceptions and views and stereotypes about different kinds of food and the kinds of people who ate them, mostly based on advertising campaigns that had nothing to do with actual reality. So you probably heard lots of examples in that story of how my sense of I was fixed on various things and fixed on being right. As you probably experienced, the sense of self has a strong desire to be right and often an equally strong fear of being wrong. So early on in my practice, I read a quote which really challenged me at the time. It said, It's better to be kind than to be right. And on one level, that's so obvious. But at the time, it had such an impact because it went so directly against my unconscious belief that it was necessary to be right at all costs. So much so that being wrong felt like a kind of annihilation. And again, we're not trying to make the whole process of this cognition that constructs a sense of self. We're not trying to make all of it wrong or bad. As John Peacock describes, the Buddha usually talks about negating only what's going wrong, not the entire process. So we don't want to metaphorically throw the baby out with the bathwater. What we are trying to do is free ourselves from the tyranny of I-based perceptions of having everything related back to the subject, me. Or as one Zen teacher, Yvonne Rand, famously described it, that little piece of excrement at the center of the universe. (laughs) That's the distorted perception that we want to clean up. So how do we start releasing the unhelpful identification with our experiences? You can probably guess that once again, it's mindfulness that comes to the rescue. The sooner we can be aware of this process playing out, the earlier in the chain we can catch it, and then the easier it is to release. This is why we put so much emphasis on paying attention to the body and practicing bare awareness at the sense doors, simply knowing experience directly as it is, without any analysis or judgment or conceptualizing about it. 
And this orientation to bare awareness is woven throughout the instructions in the Satipatthana Sutta, the four establishments of mindfulness. And it appears in the very succinct teachings that the Buddha gave to Bahia, which Rebecca shared on Friday night. I'd like to read that passage again, this time in a slightly different translation, because it is such a powerful reminder of the connection between non-identification and freedom. O Bahia, whenever you see a form, let there be just the seeing. Whenever you hear a sound, let there be just the hearing. When you smell an odor, let there be just the smelling. When you taste a flavor, let there be just the tasting. When you experience a physical sensation, let it merely be sensation. And when a thought arises, let it be just a natural phenomena arising in the mind. When it's like this, there will be no self, no I. When there is no self, there will be no moving about here and there, and no stopping anywhere. And that is the end of dukkha. That is Nibbana. So that's a translation by um, Ajahn Buddhadasa again. So as we start, as we practice staying present to the moment-to-moment flow of experiences, we start to notice that certain experiences do continually hook us. And usually these involve some kind of thought, and usually these thoughts revolve around me. So it can be quite shocking when we start practicing mindfulness of the mind to recognize just how self-referential so much of our mind stream is. And again, we need to meet this with kindness and compassion, recognizing that it's not our unique neurosis. This is just what the untrained mind does. And we're fortunate that this habit can be untrained. And one way to do this is by looking very directly at the self-referencing thoughts themselves. So on one of my early nine-day retreats, maybe it was the same one as I just described, I started to pay very close attention to my thoughts, especially to thoughts that began with the statement, I am dot, dot, dot. I am this, I am that, and so on. And when I really paid attention to those I am statements in the mind, a couple of things happened. One was that I started to notice the effect on the body of these I am statements. When my mindfulness was more refined, I could feel a subtle contraction and tightening in the body each time there was some kind of I am statement. Because by definition, in the moment, that I am statement is limiting. The second thing I noticed was that how few of these statements were actually true. And this again was quite shocking because I thought that I was keeping the precepts and being honest. But when I really paid attention to these I am statements, best they were partially true but they were almost never completely true. So to give one fairly simple example, one afternoon I'd been walking slowly and I only just made it back into the hall for the next sitting. And as I was walking into the hall, I heard myself think, I'm always late. And when I paid attention to that thought, I realized, well, I wasn't actually late even then. (laughs) I still had a couple of minutes to go. And for pretty much every other sitting, I'd been between two and five minutes early. And yet, for some reason, my mind was trying to tell me I'm always late. Now, that's a pretty benign example. But the more attention I paid, the more I started to see a lot of examples that weren't so benign. And I started to recognize certain types of language that were a clue. So, I am statements was one. Should statements is another. I should this, I shouldn't that. 
And then what we call eternalizing phrases like always or never, I'm always late, I'm never on time, I should be more punctual, and so on. So we can start to pay attention to our inner dialogue and just see what we find there. I don't know about for you, but for me in the beginning, it was not pretty. And I kind of unconsciously rationalized it to myself, well, it's okay, it's just me. But the truth is that our words and our thought patterns are harmful. So as you pay attention to your inner monologues, you might check to see, would you use those same words or that same tone of voice to anyone else? And if the answer is no, you might like to think about it in terms of the precepts and to question why is it okay to speak to yourself like that if you wouldn't speak in that harsh or harmful way to anyone else. So we're undertaking these trainings and the five ethical precepts. Not The fourth one is not lying or in its positive expression being committed to telling the truth. Also on this path, we're committed to the path factor of wise or right speech, which is abstaining from lying, abstaining from divisive speech, abstaining from abusive speech, abstaining from idle chatter. And elsewhere in the suttas, the Buddha talked about uh, uh, speech that is well-spoken, is speech that's spoken at the right time, is spoken in truth, is spoken affectionately, is spoken beneficially, and is spoken with a mind of goodwill. So there's a lot about speech that we can bring awareness to and to notice with our inner speech. Is it helpful or is it harmful? So as a support for reducing this tendency to have everything refer back to I, one thing we can explore on retreat is uh, using what's called the passive voice instead of active I statements. So to do this, we try to avoid using any personal pronouns in our inner language. So no I, or me, or my, or mine words. So for example, instead of telling ourselves, I'm so angry, I hate myself right now. What's wrong with my mind? The passive voice might sound more like, anger is arising self-judgment being known, self-hatred is like this, doubt is like this. Can you hear the difference? That often when we take out the I, the me, the my, the mine, the uh, thoughts become much less sticky and there's a little bit more space around them. So as we get more skilled at seeing how we get caught in papancha and create these mental formations and identify with them, as we get more skilled at seeing all that, we're able to step out of that whole chain reaction more quickly. And mindfulness is the key to unlocking the chain. Mindfulness is also the key that sets up a very different kind of chain reaction. This time, one that leads to increasingly refined and skillful mental states. This is a sequence of wholesome mental factors known as transcendent dependent origination. So before just touching into transcendent dependent origination a little, I want to go back to its uh, the relationship between transcendent dependent origination and ordinary dependent origination or dependent co-arising. Dependent co-arising is a framework that the Buddha laid out to describe the interdependent causes and conditions that keep us caught in suffering. And I know um, Andrea gave a whole talk on this in part one. 
And Rebecca briefly mentioned this the other night, so I'm not going to go into detail now. Just to name that the chain of cognition that I mentioned earlier is a kind of subset of the whole cycle of dependent origination. And it's ignorance that keeps that whole process going. However, when mindfulness and wisdom are strong enough, we can turn towards suffering and then instead of taking us on another spin around the cycle of samsara, that same suffering becomes a starting point for transcendent dependent origination, which leads to liberation. So this sequence of 12 factors um, as translated by Gil Fransdell, starts with suffering, which leads to confidence or faith, which leads to delight, pamoja, which leads to joy, piti, and on to tranquility, pasari, then happiness, sukha, concentration, or samadhi, which leads to seeing things as they actually are. Then disenchantment, nibida, dispassion, viraga, liberation, and then knowledge, knowledge of the destruction of the taints or outflows. So the sequence starts with suffering because it, suffering can be the impetus that causes, causes us to look for a way out. In traditional terms, this is sometimes described as the suffering that leads to the end of suffering because it comes with some sense that there has to be a better way. There must be more to life than endlessly trying to make ourselves happy through sense gratification. So... Suffering inspires a glimmer of confidence or faith that there must be another way. And then as we start on this path of practice and we try it out for ourselves, we do experience some benefit. Suffering de decreases to some extent and we recognize that our confidence or faith in the path is valid. And this inspires delight or gladness, pamoja, and because this uh, gladness is a wholesome state, we might start to see some of the seven factors of awakening come into play. So joy or pity, for example, arises naturally from delight. This pity is sometimes experienced as rapture, and at first it can be quite agitating, but eventually the energy of pity quietens down and smooths out and develops into the next factor, which is tranquility or pasari. And again, you might recognize this tranquility as one of the seven factors of awakening. It shows up as a state of deep calm, non-agitation. And then in this context, this deep calm gives rise to quiet happiness or sukha. And sukha is also a jhana factor, a mental factor that helps to stabilize the mind into deep samadhi or concentration, better translated as stability of mind or unification of mind. So sukha happiness supports the development of samadhi and that when the mind is absorbed like this, there's no room for any of the hindrances or other afflictive states to come up. And this stability of mind allows the eighth step to arise, seeing things as they truly are. In other words, deep insight into the three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self and an understanding of the Four Noble Truths on a whole new level. So this is how Gil Fransdell describes this experience. Sometimes at this stage there, there can be a complete but temporary release of all grasping. 
This experience is quite important because it shows that liberation is possible and worthwhile. Perhaps it's like climbing a hilltop where, standing above the jungle, one can see the end of the jungle in the distance. Though one must descend again back into the jungle, one is now certain about the direction to be taken. So following this shift of perspective, we see more clearly than ever the truth that nothing whatsoever is to be clung to. And this phrase is sometimes described as the heart of the Buddha's teachings. Ajahn Buddha Dasa describes it like this. The Buddha said that he could uh, summarize his teachings in one phrase. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to. And he emphasized this point by saying that whoever had heard this core phrase had heard all the teachings. Whoever put it into practice had practiced all the teachings. And whoever had received the fruits of practicing this point had received all of the fruits of the Buddha's teachings. So at this point in the sequence of transcendental transcendent dependent origination, we experience disenchantment or nibbida. This is the ninth step. And it arises when we've understood the futility of clinging to anything whatsoever. And this understanding leads naturally to the tenth step of dispassion or viraga. This is a wholesome loss of interest in clinging to sense pleasures for happiness. We know very directly through our own experience that nothing in the world out there is going to really do it for us. Even the most sublime sense pleasure is transitory. And when it ends, we're back in the same addiction cycle, looking for the next hit of pleasantness to keep us going. Now it's true that in English the word dispassion doesn't sound very appealing as a concept. So we do need to experience it directly for ourselves to understand why it's worth aiming for. And when our habitual clinging is weakened, we can experience this more refined state. And to appreciate what a relief it is to be released from the near constant agitation of wanting and not wanting. So as we get used to this feeling of relief, clinging is released on more and more subtle levels until eventually it is dropped altogether. And then we experience the 11th phase of the sequence, liberation. The heart-mind uh, heart freed from all forms of clinging, all forms of suffering, no greed, no hatred, no delusion. This liberation may be temporary, or if ignorance has been completely and fully uprooted, then it's known as complete liberation, Nibbana. Even this is not the end of the sequence, because the final stage is known as knowledge, reviewing the experience of liberation to see, to make sure that all forms of clinging have come to an end. So this is how Gil Fronstil refers to it. He says, For the Buddha, liberation is not enough. It is important to understand what has changed when one is liberated. In part, this is a safeguard against believing one is enlightened when one isn't. The final step in the awakening process is not described as any particular state, and certainly not as some form of annihilation or void. Rather, the sequence ends with knowledge. One knows through personal experience the path that led to this freedom. This is a reminder that it's a gradual progression that unfolds. If one, if one can use the recognition of suffering as an inspiration to develop confidence and skill in Dharma practice. Even more important, it teaches that liberation is not a mysterious process dependent on forces outside of our own heart and mind. The Buddhist path clearly depends on our own efforts 
to cultivate personal qualities that enable deep insight and release. While the right conditions have to be in place for liberation to occur, when one cultivates these conditions, a time comes when self-effort can fall away and the Dharma can flower in our hearts and minds. I want to highlight the last part of Gill's quote about self-effort falling away because it points to the truth that we can't use our will to make this whole sequence of liberative dependent origination arise. Instead, it depends on setting up the right conditions and then surrendering to the natural unfolding of the Dharma. As these wholesome mental states come up and get stronger, the amount of effort we need to maintain them gets less. And at this stage of the practice, our effort needs to be really refined. The best thing we can do now is to keep getting out of the way. And this kind of effortless effort is a fruit of the practice. And at times, as with this transcendent dependent origination, we can experience it as a kind of positive chain reaction where one skillful quality arises and naturally leads to the next and then the next and the next in an effortless upward spiral. So I've shared with some of you before an image that uh, comes to mind whenever I think of this effortless upward spiral. It came to me when I was uh, in New South Wales in Australia. I spend quite a bit of time there each year. And there's a large bird of prey there known as a wedge-tailed eagle, a wedge-tailed eagle that's quite magnificent. And one year I was camping with a friend in the Warrumbungle National Park, which is an area of very rugged landscape of ancient and jagged volcanic peaks. And apparently the name Warrumbungle means crooked mountains in the Gamalaroi language. The Gamalaroi being the local Aboriginal people who are the traditional owners of that land. So my friend and I were having a great time hiking on in these dramatic landscapes and we climbed up a, a peak known as the bread knife and because we were so high we were almost at the same level as several of these wedge-tailed eagles who were soaring on thermal currents just above us and these birds are huge they have wingspans of about 1.8 to 2 meters which is 6 to 7 foot 7 and they can soar for hours on end without wing beats. And apparently they can regularly get to heights of 1,800 meters or 5,900 feet. But on this occasion in the Warren Bungles, they were so close that I could see all the details on the small feathers of their underbellies. And it was really an inspiring sight to see how these birds could just keep soaring upwards upwards, upwards, on wide wings, with apparently no effort whatsoever. So keeping that image in mind, I'd like to read quite a long passage from the suttas that gives another variation on this chain reaction of skillful mental states. And in this passage, it starts with paying attention to our ethical conduct or our sila, translated as virtue in this discourse. It says, for a person endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue, there is no need for an act of will. May freedom from remorse arise in me. It is in the nature of things that freedom from remorse arises in a person endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue. For a person free from remorse, there is no need for an act of will. May joy arise in me. It is in the nature of things that joy arises in a person free from remorse. For a joyful person, there is no need for an act of will. May rapture arise in me. 
It is in the nature of things that rapture arises in a joyful person. For a rapturous person, there is no need for an act of will. May my body be serene. It is in the nature of things that a rapturous person grows serene in body. For a person serene in body, there is no need for an act of will. May I experience pleasure. It is in the nature of things that a person serene in body experiences pleasure. For a person experiencing pleasure, there is no need for an act of will. May my mind grow concentrated. It is in the nature of things that the mind of a person experiencing pleasure grows concentrated. For a person whose mind is concentrated, there is no need for an act of will. May I know and see things as they actually are. It is in the nature of things that a person whose mind is concentrated knows and sees things as they actually are. For a person who knows and sees things as they actually are, there is no need for an act of will. May I feel disenchantment. It is in the nature of things that a person who knows and sees things as they actually are feels disenchantment. For a person who feels disenchantment, there is no need for an act of will. May I grow dispassionate. It is in the nature of things that a person who feels disenchantment grows dispassionate. For a dispassionate person, there is no need for an act of will. May I realize the knowledge and vision of release. It is in the nature of things that a dispassionate person realizes the knowledge and vision of release. In this way, mental qualities lead to mental qualities. They bring mental qualities to their consummation, the sake of going from the near to the further shore. The further shore is a synonym for nibbana, liberation. So before we close this evening, I wanted to leave time so that we can have about five minutes of silence together to experiment with this non-doing orientation to practice. Similar to what Greg offered us a couple of weeks ago, to just sit together and see if we can simply rest knowing that we have nowhere to go, nothing to do, no one to be, and nothing to get.
This is peaceful. This is sublime. Namely, the stilling of all formations. The letting go of all attachments. The destruction of craving. Fading away dispassion. Cessation. Nibbana. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.